Our first scripture reading this morning is from the third chapter of Exodus and is found on page 48 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. Moses was, Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 15. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you should say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Uh, Romans 12 is listed in the bulletin. I will be reading that later uh, in the sermon, so we'll move to the gospel text this morning, which continues us in the 16th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew verses 21 through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
Then Jesus told his disciples, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. Open our hearts to receive your word, O Lord. Not just the syllables that strike our ears, but that which your Spirit is to reveal to us in our hearts, to the glory of Christ. Amen. Moses had a problem. There on the side of Mount Horeb, while he was watching Jethro's flocks, he had a lot of time on his hands while the sheep would graze. Time was a problem. Because when Moses was alone and had time, he had a tendency to think about his problems. Back in the encampment with his family, with his father-in-law, it didn't bother him so much. He could be distracted by the work and by the kids and the conversation around dinner. He didn't have to think so much. But there with the sheep under the open sky and the quiet solitude, Moses could think about his problems. He could remember his childhood in the court of the Pharaoh, the lavish dinners, the tutors, the opulence made possible, being waited upon by Hebrew slaves. The discovery that those they pressed into service who were doing their bidding were actually his true kin, his real family. He'd been trained as the grandson of the Pharaoh, but his adoption left him as a bit of an outsider. He would never inherit the wealth or the power of his step-siblings. He'd been found by the Pharaoh's daughter like an abandoned cat in the river. She brought him home, this little kitten. Daddy, can I keep him? But as the years went by, it was clear that he didn't fit in. Surveying a project for his adopted grandfather, he watched as an Egyptian guard beat a Hebrew slave, and he was so filled with rage that he had watched one of his own kinsmen being treated such. Rage filled his heart, and in turn he grabbed that guard and beat him to death with his bare fists. Unable to conceal the murder, stepson of the Pharaoh's daughter or not, he knew at that point that he was a wanted man. And so he ran. He ran into Midian, beyond the reach of the Egyptian authorities. He was taken in by a kindly Midianite, Jethro. Moses settled down, married one of Jethro's daughters. They had some kids. They lived the nomadic life and tried to fit in, but he still had this problem. Moses couldn't stop thinking about where he belonged where he fit in. 
His own people were beaten down and under the thumb of the Egyptian king. What could he do? Could he make a difference? Who am I? wondered Moses. We all have the similar problem at one time or another. Usually it's a problem that comes to us when we are in our solitude. Is this all there is to life? Family? Work? An occasional vacation? Finding just enough distraction to get us through the day without tripping over the big issues? Protecting us from the big questions? We keep ourselves busy. The haunting questions are still there. The ones about meaning. The ones about purpose. Then the burning bush, not consumed. The curiosity, the voice from the bush. Shoes off. It's rare that our problem is so clearly addressed, isn't it? When we're wondering about our purpose, our meaning in life, it's not many of us that end up having a vision of a burning bush in which God speaks directly. Moses had an advantage. God told Moses exactly who he was and what he was supposed to do. You know the story. Return to Egypt, challenge the Pharaoh to his face. Let my people go. Then the plagues, Passover, death. Let my people go. The escape, crossing the Red Sea, going to the mountain, receiving the law. We have the story. But as Chris pointed out, Moses never quite gets it. That ambiguous moment when God breaks through our pensive, thoughtful, safe solitude and tells us who we are and what we're supposed to do, Moses still had a problem. And he spent the rest of his days arguing with God over whether or not this was what he was supposed to do. Peter had the same problem. Peter knew exactly who Jesus was. He even said it just last week in our Gospel lesson. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, you got it right. Gold star, Peter, smiley face on the quiz sheet. Put it on your refrigerator, top of the class. But now what? Jesus said that meant that he had to go back to Jerusalem and face the trial with the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes, and he would be beaten and he would be crucified. The third day he'd rise again. But Peter, like Moses, with time on his hands, thought it better to play it safe. Maybe they could find some sheep and live in the wilderness. Like John the Baptist, before he opened his mouth too big, Maybe we could just live a simple life, Jesus. Play it safe. You could, you could have a few students. We could, we could open a little retreat center. Or we could buy a boat and you could continue to teach on the other side, away from Jerusalem, on the Galilee. We could open a food pantry, maybe a community center. No, says Jesus. He tells Peter, that's Satan talk. If they were going to be Jesus' followers, he makes it clear that they needed to be ready to risk, to lose their lives in order to truly save themselves. We also have a problem, don't we? 
We wonder about exactly the same things. What is our meaning? What is our purpose? Why did God create us? Why are all of our experiences and educations and abilities and resources? Are we supposed to just sit here watching a bunch of sheep? Or in most of our cases, watching somebody else's sheep, as was Moses? Peter was that close. That close to getting it right. He knew who Jesus was. He was close to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But when things got a little quiet and Jesus began to tell him about exactly what it meant, in Peter's solitude, he wondered, why can't I have it both ways? Why can I not know who Jesus is and still play it safe? I've read these words many times, pondered them, weighed them. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. It's easy in the context of the Gospels to misunderstand the full scope of what Jesus is saying to Peter in answering his question, Peter's question, our question. Is Jesus telling us that the only ultimate way to find ourselves is martyrdom? What makes the question so very hard is what we want the answer to be. It's what Peter wanted the answer to be. It's what Moses wanted the answer to be. Peter and Moses both wanted to fit in. They wanted acceptance. They wanted family, just like us. They desired to be included, just like us. They wanted to be loved. Being loved was neither the answer to Moses or to Peter or, for that matter, to us. That's why we keep lingering over the question. We don't like the answer that God gives Moses. We don't like the answer that Jesus gives Peter. We wrestle with our meaning and our purpose and our contributions and our resources and our identities. We hope in the end that all of that will add up to knowing that people love us. Sometimes we'll just settle for people to like us. We'll even sometimes find some relief if people just tolerate us. But then Jesus turns and says, no, 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 that's, that's Satan talk. Moses did not like the answer that God gave him. Why? Because it wasn't about Moses. God didn't say, Moses, raise an army and I'll make you Pharaoh over all of Egypt. God did not say, Moses, here are your instructions and you can be great and the people will love you and adore you and you can be in charge and they will embrace you. No, God told Moses, Moses, it's not about you. God says, I see the people's misery. I have heard their cries. God says, I know their suffering. And so Moses, I am calling you to love those people. Read the rest of the Pentateuch. Moses never quite gets it right. He spends the remainder of his days arguing with God because it was never about Moses. It was always about the people, and that drove Moses nuts. 
So much so that he didn't get to enter the promised land because at the last moment he made it all about him. Peter is on the verge of making the same mistake. And in fact, if we read in Holy Week, he does make the same mistake. He denies Christ, never knew him, saves his own skin. Peter did not answer the great question in order to make it all about himself. Wrapping up his letter to the church in Rome, and this is where the epistle passage fits in, the Apostle Paul has one more point that he wants to make with that church. He has already talked about the great ways in which we have all sinned. He's talked about how the Hebrew covenant through the grace of Christ, grafts all of us, even Gentiles, into the relationship with God. He has explained how God's grace brings to us salvation through the gift of faith. But before he wraps up the book, he knows the Roman community still has one more burning question. It was one more question of meaning, one more question of purpose. What are we for? Why are we here And I used to read this second half of the 12th chapter of the book of Romans as a set of bullet points, a bucket list of commendations explaining how uh, churches should behave, how, how to be a good Christian. It says, let love be genuine. Check. Do not flag in zeal. Check. Rejoice in hope. Check. Persevere in prayer. Check. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Check. And on and on and on. That's not how this paragraph works at all. It's not a checklist. It's a series of instructions supporting a single purpose. With a concise answer to the question, what is our meaning? What is our purpose? It's in the first line of the passage I'm about to read. Let love be genuine. Our meaning, our purpose is not to be loved. It is to love. It is losing ourselves into the love of others. And as much as we may not like the direction and flow of that sense of God's answer, it is exactly who and what we have been created to be. What follows here in Romans 12 is not a checklist of attributes or instructions. It is what genuine love requires. The word genuine, which I will read here in the text, is a problem because we have taken the word genuine to mean exactly the opposite, right? I once received a gift. I opened the gift and stamped on it. It was a wallet. It said, genuine imitation leather. In fact, as soon as someone says something's genuine, we've learned to shut our marketing brains off and go, I don't know what genuine it is, but it's almost like, you know, when you buy cheese and it says it's a cheese food product. Hmm, why do we have to add the word food? That strikes me as redundant. I love the way that the King James Version translates this particular word. In the King James, it says, don't let your love be dissimulated. 
Your love without dissimulation. It's a double negative, so it's an awkward English phrase. But what it's saying is don't simulate love. We all know what simulated love looks like, right? The RSV translates, let your love be genuine. Don't have simulated love. And then Paul writes this to explain what genuine love looks like. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. These are things that look like genuine love. Contributing to the need of the saints. Pursuing hospitality to strangers. Blessing those who persecute. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. For if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals upon their heads. Do not overcome evil by evil. Overcome evil with good. That's what genuine love looks like. And to love was the answer to the question of Moses, the anxiety of Peter, and to us. And to us. What is our meaning? What is our purpose? It is to genuinely love. If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake shall find it. Amen. Amen. Please join with me and stand in the affirmation of faith through the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered by the Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost.